Chapter 10 of The Wrecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. The Wrecker by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 10, Part 1. In Which the Crew Vanish. At the door of the exchange, I found myself alongside of the short, middle-aged gentleman who had made an appearance so vigorous and so brief in the great battle. "'Congratulate you, Mr. Dodd,' he said. "'You and your friends stuck to your guns nobly.' "'No thanks to you, sir,' I replied, running us up a thousand at a time and tempting all the speculators in San Francisco to come and have a try. "'Oh, that was temporary insanity,' said he. "'And I thank the higher powers. I am still a free man.' walking this way mr dodd i'll walk along with you it's pleasant for an old fogey like myself to see the young bloods in the ring i've done some pretty wild gambles in my time in this very city when it was a smaller place and i was a younger man yes i know you mr dodd by sight i may say i know you extremely well you and your followers the fellows in the kilts eh pardon me but I have the misfortune to own a little box on the Sausalito shore. I'll be glad to see you there any Sunday, without the fellows in kilts, you know, and I can give you a bottle of wine and show you the best collection of Arctic voyages in the States. Morgan is my name, Judge Morgan, a Welchman and a Forty-Niner. Oh, if you're a pioneer, cried I, come to me and I'll provide you with an axe. "'You'll want your axes for yourself, I fancy,' he returned, with one of his quick looks. "'Unless you have private knowledge, there will be a good deal of rather violent wrecking to do before you find that opium, do you call it?' "'Well, it's either opium or we are stark staring mad,' I replied. "'But I assure you we have no private information. We went in, as I suppose you did yourself, on observation.' an observer sir inquired the judge i may say it is my trade or rather was said i well now and what do you think of bel-airs he asked very little indeed said i i may tell you continued the judge that to me the employment of a fellow like that appears inexplicable i knew him he knows me too he has often heard from me in court and I assure you the man is utterly blown upon. It is not safe to trust him with a dollar, and here we find him dealing up to fifty thousand. I can't think who can have so trusted him, but I am very sure it was a stranger in San Francisco. Someone for the owners, I suppose, said I. Surely not, exclaimed the judge. Owners in London can have nothing to say to opium smuggled between Hong Kong and San Francisco. I should rather fancy they would be the last to hear of it until the ship was seized. No, I was thinking of the captain. But where would he get the money? Above all, after having laid out so much to buy the stuff in China. Unless, indeed, he were acting for someone in Frisco. And in that case, here we go round again in the vicious circle. Belairs would not have been employed." i think i can assure you it was not the captain said i for he and bellairs are not acquainted 
Wasn't that the captain with the red face and colored handkerchief? He seemed to me to know Bellair's game with the most thrilling interest, objected Mr. Morgan. Perfectly true, said I. Trent is deeply interested. He very likely knew Bellair's, and he certainly knew what he was there for. But I can put my hand in the fire that Bellair's didn't know Trent. Another singularity, observed the judge. Well, we have had a capital forenoon, but you take an old lawyer's advice and get to Midway Island as fast as you can. There's a pot of money on the table, and Bellairs and company are not the men to stick at trifles. With this parting counsel, Judge Morgan shook hands and made off along Montgomery Street, while I entered the Occidental Hotel, on the steps of which we had finished our conversation. I was well known to the clerks, and as soon as it was understood that I was there to wait for Pinkerton and lunch, I was invited to a seat inside the counter. Here then, in a retired corner, I was beginning to come a little to myself after these so violent experiences, when who should come hurrying in, and, after a moment with a clerk, fly to one of the telephone boxes but Mr. Henry D. Bellairs in person? Call it what you will, but the impulse was irresistible, and I rose and took a place immediately at the man's back. It may be some excuse that I had often practiced this very innocent form of eavesdropping upon strangers, and for fun. Indeed, I scarce know anything that gives a lower view of man's intelligence than to overhear, as you thus do, one side of a communication. Central, said the attorney, 2241, and... 584B, or some such numbers. Who's that? All right. Mr. Bellairs. Occidental. The wires are fouled in the other place. Yes, about three minutes. Yes, yes. Your figure. I am sorry to say. No, I had no authority. Neither more nor less. I have every reason to suppose so. Oh, Pinkerton, Montana Block. Yes, yes. Very good, sir, as you will, sir. Disconnect 584B. Bellairs turned to leave. At sight of me behind him, up flew his hands, and he winced and cringed, as though in fear of bodily attack. Oh, it's you, he cried, and then somewhat recovered. Mr. Pinkerton's partner, I believe. I am pleased to see you, sir, to congratulate you on your late success. And with that he was gone obsequiously bowing as he passed. And now a madcap humor came upon me. It was plain Bellairs had been communicating with his principal. I knew the number, if not the name. Should I ring up at once, it was more than likely he would return in person to the telephone. Why should I not dash, vocally, into the presence of this mysterious person, and have some fun for my money? I pressed the bell. Central, said I, Connect again 2241 and 584B. A phantom central repeated the numbers. There was a pause, and then 2241 came in a tiny voice into my ear, a voice with the English sing-song, the voice plainly of a gentleman. Is that you again, Mr. Bellairs? It trilled. I tell you, it's no use. Is that you, Mr. Bellairs? Who is that? I only want to put a single question, said I civilly. Why do you want to buy the flying scud? No answer came. 
the telephone vibrated and hummed in miniature with all the numerous talk of a great city but the voice of two two four one was silent once and twice i put my question but the tiny sing-song english voice i heard no more the man then had fled fled from an impertinent question it's scarcely natural to me unless on the principle that the wicked fleeth when no man pursueth i took the telephone list and turned the number up two two four one mrs keene res nine four two mission street and that short of driving to the house and renewing my impertinence in person was all that i could do yet as i resumed my seat in the corner of the office i was conscious of a new element of the uncertain the underhand perhaps even the dangerous in our adventure and there was now a new picture in my mental gallery to hang beside that of the wreck under its canopy of seabirds and of captain trent mopping his red brow the picture of a man with a telephone dice-box to his ear and at the small voice of a single question struck suddenly as white as ashes from these considerations i was awakened by the striking of the clock an hour and nearly twenty minutes had elapsed since pinkerton departed for the money he was twenty minutes behind time and to me who knew so well his gluttonous dispatch of business and had so frequently admired his iron punctuality the fact spoke volumes the twenty minutes slowly stretched into an hour the hour had nearly extended to a second and i sat still in my corner of the office or paced the marble pavement of the hall a prey to the most wretched anxiety and penitence the hour for lunch was nearly over before i remembered that i had not eaten heaven knows i had no appetite but there might still be much to do it was needful i should keep myself in proper trim if it were only to digest the now too probable bad news and leaving word at the office for pinkerton i sat down to table and called for soup oysters and a pint of champagne i was not long set before my friend returned he looked pale and rather old refused to hear of food and called for tea i suppose all's up said i with an incredible sinking no he replied i've pulled it through loudon just pulled it through i couldn't have raised another cent in all frisco people don't like it longhurst even went back on me said he wasn't a three-card monte man well what's the odds said i that's all we wanted isn't it loudon i tell you i've had to pay blood for that money cried my friend with almost savage energy and gloom it's all on ninety days too i couldn't get another day not another day if we go ahead with this affair loudon you'll have to go yourself and make the fur fly i'll stay of course i've got to stay and face the trouble in this city though i tell you i just long to go i would show those fat brutes of sailors what work was i would be all through that wreck and out at the other end before they boosted themselves upon the deck but you'll do your level best loudon i depend on you for that you must be all fire and grit and dash from the word go that schooner and the boodle on board of her are bound to be here before three months or it's b u s t bust i'll swear i'll do my best jim i'll work double tides said i it is my fault that you are in this thing and i'll get you out again or kill myself but what is that you say if we go ahead have we any choice then 
"I'm coming to that," said Jim. "It isn't that I doubt the investment. Don't blame yourself for that. You showed a fine, sound business instinct. I always knew it was in you, but then it ripped right out. I guess that little beast of an attorney knew what he was doing, and he wanted nothing better than to go beyond. No, there's profit in the deal. It's not that. It's these 90-day bills and the strain I've given the credit for I've been up and down, borrowing and begging and bribing to borrow. I don't believe there's another man but me in Frisco, he cried with a sudden fervor of self-admiration, who could have raised that last ten thousand. Then there's another thing. I had hoped you might have peddled that opium through the islands, which is safer and more profitable, but with this three-month limit you must make tracks for Honolulu straight and communicate by steamer. I'll try to put up something for you there. I'll have a man spoken to who's posted on that line of biz. Keep a bright outlook for him as soon as you make the islands, for it's on the cards he might pick you up at sea in a whaleboat or a steam launch and bring the dollars right on board. It shows how much I had suffered morally during my sojourn in San Francisco that even now when our fortunes trembled on the balance I should have consented to become a smuggler and, of all things, a smuggler of opium. Yet I did, and that in silence, without a protest, not without a twinge. And suppose, said I, suppose the opium is so securely hidden that I can't get hands on it. Then you will stay there till that brig is kindling wood, and stay and split that kindling wood with your penknife, cried Pinkerton. The stuff is there, we know that, and it must be found. But all this is only for one string to our bow, though I tell you I've gone into it head first, as if it was our bottom dollar. Why, the first thing I did before I'd raised a cent, and with this other notion in my head already, the first thing I did was to secure the schooner. The Nora Crana, she is, sixty-four tons, quite big enough for our purpose, since the rice is spoiled, and the fastest thing of her tonnage out of San Francisco. For a bonus of two hundred and a monthly charter of three, I have her for my own time. Wages and provisions, say four hundred more, a drop in the bucket. They began firing the cargo out of her. She was part loaded, near two hours ago, and about the same time John Smith got the order for the stores. That's what I call business. No doubt of that, said I. But the other notion? Well, here it is, said Jim. You agree with me that Belairs was ready to go higher? I saw where he was coming. Yes, and why shouldn't he, said I. Is that the line? That's the line, Loudon Dodd, assented Jim. If Belairs and his principal have any desire to go me better, I'm their man. A sudden thought, a sudden fear, shot into my mind. What if I had been right? What if my childish pleasantry had frightened the principal away, and thus destroyed our chance? Shame closed my mouth. I began instinctively a long course of reticence, and it was without a word of my meeting with Belairs, or my discovery of the address in Mission Street, that I continued the discussion. Doubtless fifty thousand was originally mentioned as a round sum, said I, or at least so Belairs supposed but at the same time it may be an outside sum, and to cover the expenses we have already incurred for the money and the schooner, I am far from blaming you. 
I see how needful it was to be ready for either event, but to cover them we shall want a rather large advance. Belairs will go to sixty thousand. It's my belief, if he were properly handled, he would take the hundred, replied Pinkerton. Look back on the way the sale ran at the end. That is my own impression as regards Belairs, I admitted. The point I am trying to make is that Belairs himself may be mistaken, that what he supposed to be a round sum was really an outside figure. Well, Loudon, if that is so, said Jim, with extraordinary gravity of face and voice, if that is so, let him take the flying scud at fifty thousand, and Joy go with her. I prefer the loss. Is that so, Jim? Are we dipped as bad as that? I cried. We've put our hand farther out than we can pull it in again, Loudon, he replied. Why, man, that fifty thousand dollars, before we get clear again, will cost us nearer seventy. Yes, it figures up overhead to more than ten percent a month, and I could do no better, and there isn't the man breathing who could have done as well. It was a miracle, Loudon. I couldn't but admire myself. Oh, if we just had the four months... And you know, Loudon, it may still be done. With your energy and charm, if the worst comes to the worst, you can run that schooner as you ran one of your picnics, and we may have luck, and, oh, man, if we do pull it through, what a dashing operation it will be. What an advertisement! What a thing to talk of, and remember all our lives. However, he broke off suddenly, we must try the safe thing first. Here's for the shyster. There was another struggle in my mind, whether I should even now admit my knowledge of the Mission Street address. But I had let the favorable moment slip. I had now, which made it the more awkward, not merely the original discovery, but my late suppression to confess. I could not help reasoning, besides, that the more natural course was to approach the principal by the road of his agent's office and there weighed upon my spirits a conviction that we were already too late, and that the man was gone two hours ago. Once more, then, I held my peace, and after an exchange of words at the telephone, to assure ourselves he was at home, we set out for the attorney's office. The endless streets of any American city pass, from one end to the other, through strange degrees and vicissitudes of splendor and distress, running under the same name between monumental warehouses, the dens and taverns of thieves, and the sward and shrubbery of villas. In San Francisco, the sharp inequalities of the ground, and the sea bordering on so many sides, greatly exaggerate these contrasts. The street for which we were now bound took its rise among blowing sands, somewhere in view of the Lone Mountain Cemetery ran for a term across that rather windy Olympus of Knob Hill, or perhaps just skirted its frontier, passed almost immediately after through a stage of little houses, rather impudently painted, and offering to the eye of the observer this diagnostic peculiarity that the huge brass plates upon the small and highly colored doors bore only the first names of ladies, Nora, or Lily, or Florence, traverse chinatown where it was doubtless undermined with opium cellars and its blocks pierced after the similitude of rabbit warrens with a hundred doors and passages and galleries enjoyed a glimpse of high publicity at the corner of kearney 
and proceeded among dives and warehouses towards the city front and the region of the water rats in this last stage of its career where it was both grimy and solitary and alternately quiet and roaring to the wheels of drays we found a certain house of some pretension to neatness and furnished with a rustic outside stair on the pillar of the stair a black plate bore in gilded lettering this device harry d bellairs attorney at law consultations nine to six on ascending the stairs a door was found to stand open on the balcony with this further inscription mr bellairs inn i wonder what we do next said i guess we sail right in returned jim and suited the action to the word the room in which we found ourselves was clean but extremely bare a rather old-fashioned secretaire stood by the wall with a chair drawn to the desk in one corner was a shelf with a half a dozen law books and i can remember literally not another stick of furniture one inference imposed itself mr bellairs was in the habit of sitting down himself and suffering his clients to stand at the far end and veiled by a curtain of red baize a second door communicated with the interior of the house hence after some coughing and stamping we elicited the shyster who came timorously forth for all the world like a man in fear of bodily assault and then recognizing his guests suffered from what i can only call a nervous paroxysm of courtesy mr pinkerton and partner said he i will go and fetch you seats not the least said jim no time much rather stand this is business mr bellairs this morning as you know i bought the wreck flying scud the lawyer nodded and bought her pursued my friend at a figure out of all proportion to the cargo and the circumstances as they appeared and now you think better of it and would like to be off with your bargain i have been figuring upon this returned the lawyer my client i will not hide from you was displeased with me for putting her so high i think we were both too heated mr pinkerton rivalry the spirit of competition but i will be quite frank i know when i am dealing with gentlemen and i am almost certain if you leave the matter in my hands my client would relieve you of the bargain so as you would lose he consulted our faces with gimlet-eyed calculation nothing he added shrilly and here pinkerton amazed me that's a little too thin said he i have the wreck i know there's boodle in her and i mean to keep her what i want is some points which may save me needless expense and which i'm prepared to pay for money down the thing for you to consider is just this am i to deal with you or direct with your principal if you are prepared to give me the facts right off why name your figure only one thing added jim holding a finger up when i say money down i mean bills payable when the ship returns and if the information proves reliable i don't buy pigs in pokes i had seen the lawyer's face light up for a moment and then at the sound of jim's proviso miserably fade i guess you know more about this wreck than i do mr pinkerton said he i only know that i was told to buy the thing and tried and couldn't what i like about you mr bellairs is that you waste no time said jim now then your client's name and address on consideration replied the lawyer with indescribable furtivity i cannot see that i am entitled to communicate my client's name 
I will sound him for you with pleasure, if you care to instruct me, but I cannot see that I can give you his address." "'Very well,' said Jim, and put his hat on. "'Rather a strong step, isn't it?' Between every sentence was a clear pause. "'Not think better of it?' "'Well, come. Call it a dollar?' "'Mr. Pinkerton, sir!' exclaimed the offended attorney, and indeed I myself was almost afraid that Jim had mistaken his man and gone too far. "'No present use for a dollar?' says Jim. "'Well, look here, Mr. Bellairs. We're both busy men, and I'll go to my outside figure with you right away.' "'Stop this, Pinkerton,' I broke in. "'I know the address, 924 Mission Street.' I don't know whether Pinkerton or Bellairs was the more taken aback. Why in snakes didn't you say so, Loudon? cried my friend. You didn't ask for it before, said I, coloring to my temples under his troubled eyes. It was Bellairs who broke silence, kindly supplying me with all that I had yet to learn. Since you know Mr. Dixon's address, said he, plainly burning to be rid of us, I suppose I need detain you no longer. I do not know how Pinkerton felt, but I had death in my soul as we came down the outside stair, from the den of this blotched spider. My whole being was strung, waiting for Jim's first question, and prepared to blurt out, I believe almost with tears, a full avowal. But my friend asked nothing. We must hack it, said he, tearing off in a direction of the nearest stand. No time to be lost. You saw how I changed ground. No use in paying the shyster's commission. Again I expected a reference to my suppression. Again I was disappointed. It was plain Jim feared the subject, and I felt I almost hated him for that fear. At last, when we were already in the hack and driving towards Mission Street, I could bear my suspense no longer. "'You do not ask me about that address,' said I. "'No,' said he, quickly and timidly. "'What was it? I would like to know.' The note of timidity offended me like a buffet. My temper rose as hot as mustard. I must request you do not ask me, said I. It is a matter I cannot explain. The moment the foolish words were said, that moment I would have given worlds to recall them. How much more, when Pinkerton, patting my hand, replied, All right, dear boy, not another word. That's all done. I'm convinced it's perfectly right. To return upon the subject was beyond my courage, but I vowed inwardly that I should do my utmost in the future for this mad speculation, and that I would cut myself in pieces before Jim should lose one dollar. We had no sooner arrived at the address than I had other things to think of. Mr. Dixon? He's gone, said the landlady. Where had he gone? I'm sure I can't tell you, she answered. He was quite a stranger to me. "'Did he express his baggage, ma'am?' asked Pinkerton. "'Hadn't any,' was the reply. "'He came last night and left again today with his satchel.' "'When did he leave?' I inquired. "'It was about noon,' replied the landlady. "'Some one rang up the telephone and asked for him, "'and I reckon he got some news, for he left right away, "'although his rooms were taken by the week. "'He seemed considerably put out. "'I reckon it was a death.' my heart sank. Perhaps my idiotic jest had indeed driven him away, and again I asked myself, why, and whirled for a moment in a vortex of untenable hypotheses. What was he like, ma'am? Pinkerton was asking, when I returned to consciousness of my surroundings. 
"A clean shaved man," said the woman, and could be led or driven into no more significant description. "Pull up at the nearest drug store," said Pinkerton to the driver; and when there, the telephone was put in operation, and the message sped to the Pacific Mail Steamship Company's office. This was in the days before Spreckels had arisen. "When does the next China steamer touch at Honolulu?" "The City of Pekin." "The City of Pekin." "She cast off the dock to day, at half past one," came the reply. "It's a clear case of bolt," said Jim. "He's skipped, or my name's not Pinkerton. He's gone to head us off at Midway Island." Somehow I was not so sure. There were elements in the case not known to Pinkerton. The fears of the captain, for example, that inclined me otherwise, and the idea that I had terrified Mr. Dixon into flight, though resting on so slender a foundation, clung obstinately in my mind. "'Shouldn't we see the list of passengers?' I asked. "'Dixon is such a blamed common name,' returned Jim, and then, as like as not, he would change it. At this I had another intuition, a negative of a street scene taken unconsciously when I was absorbed in another thought, rose in my memory with not a feature blurred. A view from Belair's door as we were coming down, of muddy roadway, passing drays, matted telephone wires, a china boy with a basket on his head, and, almost opposite, a corner grocery with the name of Dixon in great gilt letters. Yes, said I, you are right, he would change it, and anyway, I don't believe it was his name at all. I believe he took it from a corner grocery besides Bellairs. As like as not, said Jim, still standing on the sidewalk with contracted brows. Well, what shall we do next? I asked. The natural thing would be to rush the schooner, he replied. But I don't know. I telephoned the captain to go at it head down and heels in air. He answered like a little man, and I guess he's getting around. I believe, Loudon, we'll give Trent a chance. Trent was in it. He was in it up to the neck. Even if he couldn't buy, he could give us the straight tip. I think so, too, said I. Where shall we find him? British consulate, of course, said Jim, and that's another reason for taking him first. We can hustle that schooner up all evening, but when the consulate's shut, it's shut. End of chapter 10, part 1 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah.